Well, hello again. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. I'm Tony Payne. Great to have you with us here again. And I say us because Philip is back. Nice to have you back. It's nice to be back, yes. It's been a busy few weeks. It's been hard to nail you down these recent weeks. What have you been up to? I've been up to Katoomba in the coldest week I think I've ever had in Katoomba. I've been going there a long time, but I don't think I've ever been quite as cold as I was. It was a chilly mid-year conference up in Katoomba this last week. It was bitter. (laughs) (laughs) But the teaching wasn't bitter. The teaching was good and it was on guidance. Yes, it was a great time. Good crowd of people and Carl Matai was preaching for us and he's a terrific Bible teacher. It's a, yeah, it's a great time. We might talk about guidance and that kind of thing a little bit later on if the conversation sort of wanders around to that. Uh, but there's been lots else happening since last we spoke. Um, our old friend Tim Keller has gone to be with the Lord. Yes. Um, while we can rejoice in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, we still grieve for the loss and death is still a statement of the lostness of our world, isn't it, the judgment of God. And I say our old friend because we, we both met Tim way back, I think you in the 90s. I spent a little bit of time with him in the early 2000s. Mm. Uh, and he was a great gospel man. Um, oh, he was. Tell, tell us about your visit with him in the 90s in New York. Well, I had a friend uh, in America who was in New York and said he would organise for us to meet with him. So I remember we went and heard Tim preached in a Seventh-day Adventist church on one side of New York, then caught the taxi and raced across to the other side of the Great Park to a university hall, I think it was, where he spoke to a couple of thousand of his closer friends, um, almost whispering, I wasn't whispering, but speaking very quietly into a microphone to have a personal conversation with two or 3,000 people. It's an interesting style delivery of preaching. Can't remember the passage. I think it was Daniel. You couldn't help but listen to him. He was a very commanding speaker. Interesting that he was a commanding speaker in a in a conversational, gentle style. It shows yes. that there's so many ways to preach and to communicate. Yes. And his was intentional, he told me, because so many of the young New York graduates, university graduates, etc., had grown up in the middle west of America where the preachers shout a lot. And once they went to universities, they had left off that kind of Christianity. They wanted something that was thoughtful. And so he purposely did not shout. He spoke to them you know, rationally, sensibly, quietly. He, it, it, there was no histrionics in the preaching because he saw that was an antidote to the kind of screeching that they had heard from their home churches, which had turned them off. Afterwards, he did a Q&A for those who wanted to stay. 150 sat there, and we stayed on listening. And it was culturally weird, if I could put it that way. The questions were not questions of content, They were personal questions. With that American ability to talk about yourself personally, details about yourself publicly without being embarrassed. And so it was like having a personal counselling session in front of 100 or 200 people. And uh, one man persisted with his questions about how he was being persecuted at at his work. And Tim gave really clever, really well-balanced, sensitive, sensible answers but this man keep persisting so long that I thought if I was working with him, I think I'd be on the persecutor side. <laughs> but he, he no just... wonder you're having a hard time at work if you're that kind of personality. <laughs> yes, but he was so uninhibited about answering, and Tim was so patient and kind with him. It was very interesting kind of interaction. But it's the kind of man that he was. He was a very patient and kind and generous man. 
Yes. I got introduced to him and he immediately organised and took me home to his place. There he'd been preaching all day, but he took this foreigner in and gave me a meal. He and his wife uh, put themselves out and I, I can't remember, 11.30 or something like that before I left his place. We'd spent hours talking and yet we knew we had much more to talk about. So he organised for me to have morning tea with him in a cafe in town the next day where we spent a couple of more hours. And it's one of the only times I've actually sat in a cafe, pulled out the napkin or serviette and drawn out two ways to live for someone. Uh, I didn't seem converted. (laughs) (laughs) But we had a very interesting conversation as two men who believed the same, wanted the same, desired the same, uh, but were coming from different ends of the universe, different parts of Christianity, and felt like we had much to learn from each other. I remember in the mid to late 90s, uh, as we were involved at, at St Matthias at that time, especially in church planning, trying to figure out how church planning worked, how to do church planning, how it fitted in with the view of congregations and all those kinds of things. I remember you mentioning Tim Keller and your conversations with him, and I think we learnt uh, from him about church planting and some, oh, of, yes. some of the ideas that he'd had because yep. he'd done a lot of thinking about the whole process. Yes, yes, yes. I, I came back from talking with him more determined into church planting and seeing the tactical advantage of church planting. He showed the evidence of how the gospel spread across the Midwest through church planting, that the planting happened first and the evangelism second, which is a kind of back-to-front way of thinking. I found a great encouragement from him about closing down churches actually slows gospel spread and opening up more branches actually increases gospel spread. It was a turning point in my thinking to spend time with him on that subject. He was very helpful, very very kind and patient with me. We disagreed (laughs) all kinds of things, Uh, but it was a really positive disagreement. I had quite a similar experience. I went to New York in the early 2000s. They were running weekenders where pastors could come in and see what was happening at Redeemer, uh, learn from them, ask their questions and so on. And I was in the area at the time, and so I went in and had a wonderful weekend. And likewise, he took some time, me, a young guy at that stage from Australia, to, to sit down and talk with him personally uh, for some for a few minutes. And it was he was very gracious and kind. And as you say, it was a great example of going to a ministry where you immediately felt we have so much in common, we're on the same gospel cause together, and yet we approach things differently and we'll disagree about some things. Uh, And in particular, it was interesting, I found, to chat with him about the whole question of recruiting for ministry. Yes. Um, That was one of the tensions that he was feeling as as we talked about it, because, of course, his, his view of how you reach a city, of redeeming the city, and are really encouraging people to throw themselves into their work in the city as almost part of their Christian kind of uh, life, was it was kind of a tension point with wanting to recruit people into gospel ministry. And yes. so even he had a very That's large right. ministry, he wasn't seeing many people come into gospel ministry. Yes, that was, that was part of I remember my discussion with him was much the same. That is, he had this grand scheme of church planting, but he couldn't find church planters because he was encouraging everybody to stay in their work and not leave it. So part of the, what I wanted to learn from him about church planting and the whole values of it, he wanted to learn from me about how do you recruit people into ministry. And it was great fun talking with each other, um, you know, trying to eat the same elephant from different ends and uh feeling the frustrations of, that we both were feeling in terms of the tactics of getting the gospel out today. It's a great example in some ways of 
how Christian disagreement should function. Because uh, with Tim, he was a great one, a great gospel man, uh, with, a, with a great legacy of gospel work that he's done, but we disagreed about various things. And certainly in my conversations with him, and by the sound of it with yours, he was someone you could disagree with in a positive way, in the way that uh, he engaged, and you can engage with him, and it kind of modelled how Christian disagreement, in a sense, should function. It should be something quite positive, something fruitful, as you try to sharpen each other. Because you're not disagreeing with him as a Christian brother or as a gospel servant, but about this particular issue. Yes, it was. it's an important element to seize. I mean, Paul and Barnabas disagreed. Paul and Peter disagreed. With the Paul and Peter disagreement in Galatians, the gospel is at stake, in a sense. The truth of the gospel is at stake. Paul and Barnabas, it's about Mark, whether he should continue with them, which may have had gospel implications as to what lay behind that disagreement. But Christians do disagree. But that doesn't mean we personally disagree. We're disagreeing about tactics. We're disagreeing about theology at times. We disagree. I mean, there is a limit to the disagreement. So in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul speaks about disagreement, which is necessary in order to show what is the genuine. But the disagreements that we have over all kinds of other issues, tactical issues of Christian ministry, they're important. They're valuable. They're they're positive, and they contribute to your welfare and the welfare of the Christian ministry. We should ever avoid disagreements, uh, but we do need to disagree properly. Donald Robinson was fascinating in this regard. I mean, he was the vice principal of Moore College when I was a student here and became the Archbishop of Sydney. Donald was seemingly dispassionate. You would disagree with him about a topic, quite strongly disagree with him, but as soon as you moved to the next topic, the last topic was closed. It was finished. He, he never seemed to take personally the disagreement and he never disagreed with me personally. He, 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 would, he and I disagreed very strongly at some occasions uh, when he was the Archbishop and uh, I, I had some very strong and, and difficult conversations with him. But as soon as the topic was finished, the next topic continued and when the whole discussion finished, uh, we were personally good friends. It had nothing to do with me as a person, him as a person, or our friendship and love for one another or respect of one another. And he was a great model at being able to disagree. There are others too. Chapo and I had incredible disagreements, but Chapo's disagreements were of a different character. Chapo used disagreements to test out ideas. So when I worked with him for a couple of years, we drove into town, we were living out the same part of Sydney, it was about a half hour drive in, and he would start up on something he wanted to think about and provoke me into disagreeing with him. And so we would have a real Barney on the way in, and then on the way home, the subject would be raised again, although, to my confusion for the first few weeks, he would change sides and try out the other side on the way back. And so I'd have to repeat his arguments, which I didn't agree with in the first place. I actually was thinking what I actually thought. He was just testing out ideas and strengthening his arguments for any particular case, testing the ideas. If you'd been in the back of the car and listened to us, you would have thought we were the world's greatest enemies, the ferocity with which he argued, and I argued back. But no two men could have uh, been more caring and loving of each other. It was because we had good relationship that we could really express what we thought and not worry about our relationship being damaged by it. 
That's positive disagreement. So much of the disagreement we have is not positive, though, is it? I don't often lurk in social media much these days. I've just become weary of it. I Uh, disagree with you there. You shouldn't lurk at all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do lurk occasionally. Um, And it's fascinating how many of the disagreements, arguments and conversations, say on Facebook, for example, aren't like this. They're not an attempt to get at the truth together by taking different sides, trying out ideas, pushing each other. It's amazing how quickly it moves to the personal. That is, I'm personally aggrieved about something and I want to proclaim my victimhood and and what's gone wrong and what I'm bitter about and what's terrible. So my hurt and my sense of grievance is expressed. And conversely, your motives and who you are as a person or perhaps what power you have or where you stand or what organisation you're aligned with or who you represent – that's used to diminish and deride you. And so the issue in the centre, the actual content of what you want to talk about, is is rarely engaged with. Yeah. It's very depressing. It is very depressing. One of the good things about the Synod of the Diocese of Sydney, that's the kind of annual political gathering of the Diocese of Sydney with that 800 members, is that the chairman would never allow motives to be attributed to anybody. And as soon as anybody attributed a motive to any speaker... A point of order would be called from the floor and they'd be asked to stop that you can't attribute motives to speakers. You can only deal with the content of what they're saying. It was a very good discipline. It kept the harmony in heightened political debate, but it also taught you about life in general and how you discuss things. Social media fails, though, because it's not social. You see, if you and I do have a personal issue, then we should talk about it personally, not in front of the watching world of media, not impersonally in terms of, well, people like Tony Payne think, Mm. right? I should go to Tony Payne and say, Tony, I've got a problem here. But social media, well, it's not social. And it's, it's not a great forum for actually discussing the issues often either because it's such a, a vast crowd of people clustered around a discussion. Anonymous. Anonymously often, or even if not anonymously, chipping in something from their perspective that is often not relevant to the actual discussion but relates to them and their personality or their grievances. But it's not only anonymous often, but it's an unseen crowd too. You don't know who else is there listening in, do you? No, you don't know who's watching. And the fact that you know that a crowd is watching also then changes the way you respond because it becomes performative. I'm not just disagreeing with you. I'm disagreeing with you in front of other people. So I want them to see that I'm disagreeing what I'm saying. I mean, I saw a fascinating example of this recently in one of my recent lurking episodes. Um, Our friend John Dixon, which is, I suppose, another person with whom we've had some disagreements, but he was a good Christian brother, uh, he wrote a nice little review of a new book that Matthias Media's put out called Unmissable Church, which was by Anthony Barraclough and Richard Sweatman. It's about all the reasons why people don't go to church and end up missing church, and it's a, a really helpful pastorally sensitive, well-written encouragement for Christians to come to church. And it's really brilliantly done. Um, and John read a lovely little review saying what a, how pleased he was to see it out and how helpful it was. And it was fascinating because the discussion that then ensued that went on for hundreds of comments was an example very much of what I was saying before, people talking about their own bitter experiences of church. How could anyone encourage me to go to church after what the church has done to me? 
And then also people attributing motive to the authors. Oh, they're part of the establishment. They're part of the power structure. Mm -hmm. Of course they want you to come to church Mm -hmm. because it's in their self-interest for you to come to church and they're part of this Anglican church anyway, which is corrupt. And and it was a classic example of no one had read the book. No one was discussing the ideas or issues or arguments put forward in the book, just either putting forward their own personal grievance or questioning the stance, motives or power structure of the authors. Yeah, it's awful, isn't it? I'm glad to hear the book's out. I haven't read it or seen it myself, but that's great that it has come out. It's an important topic to raise. But, uh, yeah, I, it's it's personal grievances. I presume also it will have been tribalism to some extent, won't it? That, the fact that one of the authors was a Sydney Anglican, the other one associated to some extent, yeah. kind of that reared its head once or twice in some of the comments. Yeah, but it's their problem. It's them. It's they. You know, as soon as you know that people are complaining about what the government or what they do, you know that it's it's like when the discussion arrives at Adolf Hitler. It really is time to give up, isn't it? When you're not talking about any specific person, what an actual person has done or some evidence of what they've done or discussing an actual argument or something that's been put forward interacting with it, if it's just a pigeonholing of a group or a person... And look... This can't help but make us think of the discussion that's happening in our culture at the moment, in our society, about the voice. It, it seems to yes. be whatever we might think politically about that, and that's a complex issue, the discussion hasn't been that healthy. It's been very much the kind of discussion we've just been talking about, hasn't it? Yes. You're right. I mean, for those of us who are overseas, Australia is going to have later in this year a constitutional referendum which, if it passes, will give a particular voice to Indigenous Australians. And we have a long history of our Indigenous peoples being terribly marginalised and oppressed. And dreadful things have happened. And I, I think it's fair to say that pretty well all Australians feel and would act in any way that could improve the life of Indigenous Australians. I think so, yes. We're all desperate to make some amends for the past and some hope for improved life now and in the future for Indigenous Australians. Will changing the constitution help this or hinder this is a a genuine question. And will this particular change in the constitution help it or hinder it? And some people say yes, some people say no. When the referendum happens, the country will vote either yes or no. But the debate keeps on being degenerated into racism. In other words, the attribution of motive. Yes. You're saying no because you're racists and you want to oppress the, the Indigenous peoples even further. Or you're saying yes because you want to instil racism into our constitution. You want to have a race-based category within the yeah. constitution. We don't want that. So it's it's racism either way. Racism either way. And that is totally unhelpful in thinking out what would be the best way to help the Indigenous communities of Australia and for Australia to help as much as possible unifying the country. I think everyone wants the same thing, what we're dealing with is a mechanism to get there. That's not something we should be attacking each other over because we won't be listening to the arguments and the reasons and weighing up the rights and wrongs when we're so emotionally engaged in ascribing motives, evil motives, to the opposite side. And when many sides of the question are so engaged or invested in the political power that will ensue, 
from their side winning. So you can't yes. help but see that to some extent the no side sees a political advantage in winning the no argument or putting the no argument. The yes side, there are political forces there as well that are seeking political advantage. And, and so it's very hard to separate those things, push those things back and discuss calmly and reasonably together the actual mechanism and what would be most helpful. Yes, and I think you can vote yes without being a racist, and I think you can vote no without being a racist. But I think we've reached a stage where in some personal conversations people don't want to say how they would vote because of the backlash they receive for being on that side. It's either, you know, you are one of those progressive people or you're one of those conservative traditionalist people when in fact it may have nothing to do with being progressive or traditionalist it may happen to be that you think this is a good or a bad idea i'm going to try an awkward segue here philip and say it's it's almost as if we need guidance <laughs> that is a slightly awkward yeah that's a bit lame i appreciate that um, but let's do it yeah. yes because we should get back to the mid-year conference shouldn't we? it'd be nice to talk a little bit about what happened there and what the message was because in a sense in a vaguely related sense it is about the pursuit of the truth and about how you find the truth and especially how you come to to sort through all the different factors that might be bearing upon you to make a decision and that area as Christians, the way we talk about it is we think about guidance. Yes. God's guidance, understanding what God wants us to do in this particular circumstance. Which is a particularly Christian truth. Not that I think that uh, there are alternative truths to the Christian truth, but it's a Christian way of thinking caught up in that word providence. We've been secularised in our language so that we do not talk of God's providence anymore. But it was a normal term. In the 17th century, Providence, Rhode Island, or the Providence plantations of Rhode Island were set up. And Providence is the capital city of the state of Rhode Island. In fact, the state of Rhode Island, until very recently, was the state of Rhode Island's and Providence plantations. Understand they've just chopped off and Providence plantations, which I'm glad in one sense because a very ugly title as a state. And it's the smallest state in America. And so they have the biggest title for the smallest state. But it was called Providence because the man who went there, who in a sense was the father of the state, Roger Williams, he was a separatist. He saw the corruption to the gospel that comes from the state church of England and really believe in total separation of state and church, unlike the kind of separation Australia has, of course. And because of his attack on the monarch and the state church, Massachusetts were seeking to put him in prison, but he got out, he escaped the arrival of the police uh, with a couple of days to spare, marched for 50 miles in deep snow, was rescued by the Indians and looked after for several months until the winter broke, and then marched into the area of, of Rhode Island and found a place to set up his plantations and declared Providence is the name because Providence had provided this place for me. We wouldn't think of talking about Providence has provided this place for me. It's just not the word itself almost has disappeared from let alone the concept. We talk about Mother Nature doing <laughs> yes, Mother things. Nature does things, yes. And sometimes we talk or say these days, oh, that's the way we're wired. As oh, if they're um, yes. as if there's a kind of 
divine electrician who has kind of set us up, or some, somehow we've become wired to be a certain way. Yes. But we would never think of saying that that's how God has disposed us to be no. wired or that how God has provided us to be, to be framed or in some way yep. uh, created. Sometimes you have people with a little phrase. Uh, I heard someone this morning say, thank God. It's a, it's a little kind of hangover from the past, as if God was involved in what happened. How does providence relate to guidance then? Well, guidance is looking for providence. <laughs> and the difficulty with it, of course, is you don't know what God will provide, which is providence, other than what he has promised to provide. Afterwards, you can look back and see providence, but beforehand, you've got to go to where God has promised to provide something for you. Uh, The fact that he has provided previously for somebody else is no indication that he will provide for you next time. So he provided warning for Belshazzar by writing on on the wall, telling him what was going to happen. That doesn't mean that God is now going to send messages on walls, that I should read walls wherever I can. Graffiti is God's means of communication to me. That God can doesn't mean that God will. That God has doesn't mean that God will. It's rather, what does God promise he will guide me in? And for many people, it's not satisfactory what God has promised because he doesn't tell me whether to work for ESSO or BP or whether to work for the Commonwealth Bank or the Westpac. Or whether to vote yes or whether to vote no. Yes, I want God to give me details. And so they look for other guidance from God, a dream, a vision, a hope that might happen. But what we're told about God is that he does promise us everything that we really need to know to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. What we're not told, in a sense, doesn't matter. Can I be a Christian working for the Commonwealth Bank of Australia? Yes. Can I be a Christian working for Westpac, another bank of Australia? Yes. So it doesn't matter which. I should just use godly wisdom as to what would be the most helpful place for me to be working on things like how much money they pay, what are the terms and conditions, how close it is to home, all kinds of things like that. But I shouldn't be waiting for a a message written on a wall, go to Commonwealth, or a little voice in, in my head, go to Westpac, or a dream of seeing someone with a logo of yet another bank on their shirt. I should be looking at what God does promise, because what he does promise is everything that matters. I will be led by the Holy Spirit, not to one bank or one company or another or to one particular person to marry or another. I'll be led by the Spirit to God as my Father, to Jesus as my Lord, and to put to death the deeds, the bad deeds of my flesh. Those things are the things that matter. Which company I work for, which suburb I live in, which house I buy, doesn't really matter. And so God provides very clear instruction and guidance for us to know the Lord Jesus, to live for him, to know what it means to live to him, to know in quite some detail what sort of life we should live, what virtues we should cultivate, what deeds we should put to death, how we should trust him, how we should hope in the hope of eternal life. There's lots and lots of very clear and specific guidance about living our lives. Yes, it's very specific. See, from the Bible, I know how to drive my car. Oh, I don't know how to use the clutch or the accelerator, but I know about loving my neighbour. I know about obeying the government. I know, therefore, that I should drive 
within the constraints of the governmental regulations and I know that I should go over and above that by making sure my fellow, my passengers are feeling comfortable and, and safe when I'm driving the car. Are you saying that we should let people in when they come up on the left and put their blinker on and try to, that God's guiding us to be patient and let the other person go instead of tooting my horn and being rude to them? Even when they're doing the wrong thing. Even when they're in a black Mercedes and they're doing the wrong thing. Yes, yes. It used to be the Volvo, but it's the Mercedes now. <laughs> yes, that's right. I mean, the Bible gives me details on how to drive my car. Give me details on how to treat my colleagues how to treat my boss, how to treat the people I'm responsible for in supervision. People want God's providence beforehand. You're not given providence beforehand. Afterwards, you can look back and say, oh, that's what God did in my life. And we need to look back and say it too. Otherwise, we wind up censoring God out of existence by secularist explanations of everything. And so let's recapture providential language, but let's recapture it in hindsight rather than looking for it in guidance outside of the scriptures. There's a lot to be said about guidance. I mean, that's a very good short summary, really, not only of the last week at Midgey Conference, but of the little book we wrote about guidance all those years ago. Which uh, still sells well. It's still in print and still going strong. <laughs> yes. When we originally published it, it was called The Last Word on Guidance, which I thought was perhaps the cleverest book title we've ever come up with. Yes, I thought of a cleverer one. Which was? Well, the second edition should have been The Last Word on Guidance, revised and updated. <laughs> <laughs> The publisher wouldn't go with that for some reason, Philip. So the second edition was called Guidance and the Voice of God, and that's what it's now called. So if you want to dig further into guidance and kind of tease out some of the ideas we've just been discussing, grab hold of of Guidance and the Voice of God. It's still there and still going strong. It came from mid-year conferences. One of the the very early mid-year conferences. Mid-year conference now is in May because of the University of New South Wales uh, has such weird holiday practices. But it really was taking away the Christians mainly, Vastly, overwhelmingly, the Christians who came to Bible study for a whole week's Bible study together. They spend time doing manuscript discovery. They spend time in seminars during the day and discussions. Terrific times of playing sport and freedoms. Good food up there at Katoomba. The cooking up there, that's the best camp food that's going. But then the evening is given over to an exposition of the Word of God and question time. And so... Having spent all day in small groups and personally, privately studying the scriptures at depth, the topic then is addressed by now Carl Mattai, and they were great talks. I've done one lame segue already today, final lame segue, great talks, conferences, King's Birthday Conference is coming up Monday week, and I think this is probably the last episode where we can give a little plug and encourage people to come along. Oh, well, you should, you should. I'm still having trouble with that title. I still keep wanting to call it Queen's birthday, uh, but it's the King's birthday that we now have. And on that uh, 12th of June 12th, starting at 1.30 here at Moore College. My brother and I are going to speak. Peter's going to speak about government and the whole systematic theology of government. And I'll be speaking about uh, long live the king. What is the king? What was the coronation? Where do we see something paralleled in the coronation Uh, in our own weddings, where do we see the coronation in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's very important that every now and then we step back and think, well, what is government all about? What do we want from our government? What should we want from our government? What should we do in relationship to our government? And the coronation of the king is a starting of a new era 
10,000 miles away from us in one sense, but that's all the better because it enables us to think about it. If you are a Republican, what kind of republic do you want? What kind of appointment would you want? You've got to have a coronation. Okay, well, what do you want? What is it in the coronation that you would need to replicate to establish a president? And if you're a monarchist, what is the king that we have? What was that service about? What was it trying to achieve? Why do we want to have this? We're not going to come down on a Republican or or monarchist attitude. Well, I don't know, my brother might, but we're not going to. I'm not going to. But whether it's a Republican or a monarchist, we still need to have the same governmental understandings. And so what is the scripture really teaching Christian society and Christians in society to seek in our rulers? Well, there's a sneak preview of of the King's Birthday Conference on June the 12th. Uh, Go to philipjensen.com, philipjensen.com, that's with two L's, Philip, uh, jensen.com for all the details and to register. Uh, It's not too late to do that. But Philip, I think that will probably do us for today. We've we've rambled our way across several subjects today. I hope that's been helpful, dear listener. Uh, And as always, why don't we finish by praying? Philip, why don't you pray for God to guide us in his providence? Okay. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you that you are the Lord of all. We thank you for the appointing of your Son to rule this universe. We thank you that he does, that he looks after us, provides for us, cares for us in so many ways. And we do pray, Father, that you would continue to lead us into all the ways that would bring us to repentance and faith and that would build us up in that faith that we may become ever more like your Son to his praise and to his glory. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.